Today's reading will be from Acts 1, 15 through 26. I'll give everyone a second to find that spot in their Bibles and stand as we read God's Word. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, and until, that, until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry in apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, with what you just said, uh, let's start there in our time together. Um, as Ben finished reading, uh, he says, this is the word of the Lord, and you all say, thanks be to God. It's something we're in the habit of doing here. It's a good habit, but sometimes habits can also become mindless activities. And in the text tonight, we're dealing with the authority of Scripture as a, as a foundation that we actually believe. The authority of Scripture is something that we believe in. And so when we say something like, this is the word of the Lord, uh, we, don't, we don't just mean to say that, that, is, that this is one of many things that the Lord has spoken. Uh, this, is, this is one among a number of things in which God can reveal himself. We're saying this scripture is the word that God has spoken to us. And by his spirit, which he continues to speak to us today as well. And uh, as we go into the text tonight, I want you to kind of keep that beginning part in mind. Uh, this is the word of the Lord means something. It has a kind of significance for our lives, and I'm going to try as best I can with uh, the text tonight to at least explain where Christians get that conviction from. What is the source of that conviction? Why do we believe that Scripture is, in fact, the Word of God and not, as many have said, simply the ruminations of men thinking spiritually about God? So um, we're going to kind of keep that in the forefront of our minds. But to start with the text, because that's a lot of stuff to get into, Uh, Let's look at verse uh, 15 and notice that uh, we find the apostles 
uh, and really more than just the apostles, about 120 or so of them, uh, in the upper room. Now this, of course, is our, uh, a story already in progress because where we left them last week, we left them with instructions from Jesus to go into all the world to be witnesses. And then Jesus says, but wait, and I will pour out the Holy Spirit to you not many days from now. And then they see him go, and then they're essentially tasked to wait. And it is in that position that we find them waiting, uh, the 12 apostles and, and others among them, all waiting together, and as the text says, uh, praying together with one accord. That's in verse 14. And so it's during this time that this group of people who Jesus has just left is together, and Peter stands up and uh, tells them essentially, Judas was one of the 12, was chosen by Jesus himself as an apostle, and Judas has betrayed Jesus. That leaves a gap in the apostles, right? There were 12, and now there is 11. And so Peter says, we should choose another one, and they all together concur. Uh, so when, when Peter stands up and says that, you might say, why, why Peter? Peter is what we would say is the chief of the apostles. Now, all of the apostles are uh, witnesses and authorities of Christ. They're all, in, they're all entrusted and, let's say, on the same kind of authority. They have the same authority that they convey. But, but Peter is what we would say is the chief of them, meaning not that he has authority distinct from the others, but that he is the leader of that group of 12, now 11 of them. In fact, uh, if you were to wonder, does Peter have authority that goes outside of or above the rest of the apostles? Uh, scripture itself would tell us that that's not true because Scripture tells us, Paul tells us in Galatians, that he actually has to rebuke Peter uh, at one point because Peter was acting wrongly. So Peter is not some person who's the king over the church. Christ is king over the church. Peter is one of his leadership uh, figures. He's one of his uh, ambassadors, if you like. So Peter stands up uh, as the spokesperson for these 120 and says these words, brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, uh, the scripture that he's referring to is the scripture that's quoted there later in verse 20. It's actually two different Psalms that are quoted. Uh, and what he's doing in saying the scripture must be fulfilled and then explaining relevant details about Judas is he's explaining how Judas fulfills the scripture before he quotes the scripture. It's a little bit of a backwards way to do it compared to how we're used to seeing things. We're used to reading it and saying, okay, let's see how this is fulfilled. In this case, uh, he says, first, the scripture had to be fulfilled that David spoke concerning Judas. And here are the details relevant in Judas's life that the scriptures speak of. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alchidemia, that is, field of blood. And then it says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. So all of that parenthetical stuff between the scripture must be fulfilled concerning him, and for it is written in the book of Psalms, all of that intervening stuff, is all the relevant details that Peter is saying, Judas, or is, Peter is saying applies to Judas. It applies to what happened in his life. And I think in part what we have to get from this first, uh, these first couple of verses 
is that when, when Judas betrays Jesus, that's a betrayal unprecedented, right? Betraying the Son of God over to death. Uh, this is, this is a, a terrible kind of betrayal. But it's not the kind of betrayal that Scripture doesn't anticipate happening. It's not the kind of betrayal that God didn't anticipate would happen. And so it's the kind of thing that Scripture has already spoken about beforehand. That should, in some sense, not in every sense, but in some sense, serve as a comfort to us. Because I think sometimes we can tend to think about wicked things and good things like they're in contest with one another. As though uh, what, what God is trying to do in this world is all good, and there's evil forces at work which sometimes, despite God's best efforts, thwart his plans, undermine his authority, or strike a, a blow against him. And in some sense, on a human level, a human way of understanding, that is true. From our vantage point, wicked things do sometimes prevail over good things or strike a blow against things that we would say are good. Uh, we know that uh, people whom we love can suffer from wickedness in this world. We sometimes ourselves have suffered from wickedness in this world. We can look at the course of human history and know that the church, the very people of God, have often suffered at the hands of wicked men and women uh, who have persecuted the church. But what scripture affirms time and time again is that God is in control and sovereign over even the sufferings of his people. Now that does not mean he coordinates or volitionally assigns to his people suffering, but the way that the confessions would speak of it and church historians, have, uh, church theologians have spoken of it throughout the history of the church is that God ordains all things which come to pass. God himself is sovereign and so even the betrayal of Judas, where he betrays Jesus, God is sovereign over that. Actually, God has spoken in his word about that very kind of thing before it took place. And so I think that should serve in, in some sense as a comfort to us that even the terrible things which happen in this world, as hard as they are to understand, God has control and sovereignty over them. Now, I'm not claiming at this moment to be able to resolve for you in whatever detail might come to mind, exactly how God is working or why he has chosen to allow this suffering or this evil to take place. But all I'm saying is that scripture does in fact affirm that God is sovereign and that evil actually has no jurisdiction outside of what God allows evil to have. So uh, that's, that's at least one aspect of this. The other, the other piece uh, is not really central to the point of the text, but I'm going to deal with it because it's, it is central to the authority of Acts, or really the, the witness of the, the book of Acts itself, and that is this detail about how Judas dies. So if you were to go and you were to read a, someone who says things like, the, the Bible has contradictions within it, one of the common examples of contradictions within the Bible is one that we read right here. So if you were to try to look at this text where it says in verse 18, Judas, this man, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And he fell headlong and burst open in the middle of it, and all his bowels gushed out. And you were to try to reconcile that with how Matthew describes uh, Judas' death, where it says that Judas hanged himself. And well, Judas doesn't just hang himself. Judas actually takes the money that he got from the Pharisees, gives it back to them, and then he goes and hangs himself. So there's a, a, you can see the contradiction as it's unfolding. This text seems to say that Judas bought this field and died in a different way than hanging, and Matthew's gospel seems to say that Judas gives the money away, doesn't do anything with the money, besides give it back, and then hangs himself. So therein we have a seeming contradiction. 
Well, it's a seeming contradiction, except that uh, the church fathers, the, the, those who received the Gospels and the New Testament as authoritative, they're native Greek speakers, and they're living in the times that these events took place. So if, if someone comes to them and says, hey, here's how Judas died, and someone else comes to them and says, hey, no, actually, here's how Judas died, they would not take both of those books, put them into the same canon of Scripture, and say, we see no problems here. These were, these were men who were thinking about the authority of God's word and were taking books out of the canon, not taking them out, the canon is being formed. They're keeping books out of the canon that are not authoritative and that do contradict with the testimony of scripture. So these men had thought about this and even this text, there are church fathers who comment on the seeming discrepancy between Judas's death in Luke, according to the book of Acts, and in Matthew's gospel. Now, the resolution is actually fairly simple. According to church history, what happens is exactly what Matthew says and exactly what Luke says. Now, what, what Judas does, he betrays Jesus. At some time later, he feels guilty for his betrayal, and he gives the money back to the Pharisees. He throws it before them and says, I don't want any of this. Then Judas goes and hangs himself, as Matthew says. Either he hangs long enough where no one takes him down because cursed be the one who hangs on the tree, that his body dis, uh, essentially decomposes in the position of hanging and he falls to the ground and bursts open in a field, very likely and very possible. And because he was seen as such a wicked sinner, this is likely to have been the way his corpse would have been treated. Or the other possibility is that he, he was hung and just the fall itself from the rope after the rope snapped or was cut down that his body uh, was burst open in the field. So both Luke and Matthew are easily reconcilable with just a simple accounting of events. Now, what do we do about the fact that this text says that this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness? Well, the Pharisees have money that Judas gave them that they don't want because it's blood money. They used it to betray Jesus, to pay off Judas, to betray him. And so what they do with that money, according to church history, is they take that money and they buy the field that Judas died in and they bury Judas there with the money that he acquired by his own wickedness. You see, Acts doesn't say Judas bought the field. Acts says Judas acquired the field with money from his own wickedness, which is totally true. In the same way that I could make a purchase, let's say, for instance, if you think about someone buying a house today, uh, if you buy a house, it is very rare that you are the one who hands the money to the other person. Often it is the case that you buy the house on, with emissaries doing most of that work for you. In fact, usually what you do is you tell a bank that has access to your money to send a down payment over here, and that bank sends it to someone else who the bank has the authority to uh, be an emissary for, and the money is exchanged in that kind of way. Where the, the people aren't actually exchanging cash at all, it, it's being bought in their behalf or in their, with their authority. And uh, if you were to think about, well, Judas is dead, he's not doing this actively. It, it's also just as simple as thinking, well, what happens when someone has a will and needs to be buried? Uh, often they have someone who is in charge of dealing with those uh, financial decisions for them and on their behalf. And so it can easily be spoken of this being done by their will or by their authority. So uh, there's no real contradiction here uh, in the text. And none of that, what I just said for the last three minutes or so, has anything to do with the main point of the sermon. But I wanted to deal with it because you'll read about it and it's there. So uh, the text... All of what just happened to Judas, Peter insists, was spoken of in the Psalms. And there we go to verse 20 in the book of Psalms. 
And there's two quotations, and we're going to turn to both of them. Uh, I'll just read them for you in, in context here. First, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and also let another take his office. So the first psalm we're going to turn to is Psalm 69 in the Old Testament. So if you uh, can turn there in your Bibles. And Psalm 69 is a long psalm, so we're going to be in verse 25. That's where the, the reference is from. And the reason uh, we're going to do this periodically throughout the book of Acts is because Acts uses a lot of Old Testament, just like the Gospel of Luke does. But what Acts is doing is it's showing us how the New Testament writers, particularly how the apostles, use the Old Testament as a justification for and as an application of their mission. So, for instance, Psalm 69, verse 25 is going to be an example of this. Now, I'll read just verse 25 there in Psalm 69. May their camp be a desolation... Let no one dwell in their tents. Well, that's interesting. Uh, for instance, if you, were, if, you were, if you kept your finger back in, in Acts, it says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So it switches the plural to the singular. Okay. But who is Psalm 69 talking about? Well, Psalm 69, I said, is a long psalm, but it's, it's essentially talking about this paradigm of a righteous person who needs redemption from God, in this case, redemption, bodily rescuing from some affliction. And there's wicked men, enemies of God, who surround this person who's crying out to God for help. And God, uh, the psalm calls God to punish these wicked ones in accordance with their deeds, with their activities. For instance, if you look at verse 22 of Psalm 69, let their own table become a snare to them. And when they are at peace, let it be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. This is a psalm written, at least this section of the psalm, is dealing with the enemies of God and how God ought to treat his enemies, as the faithful pray for God to deliver them. And so we can ask the question, does this apply to Judas, who is the enemy of the righteous one of God, who is the one who is the paramount betrayer of God's people, Christ himself, whom he betrayed? And so taking this psalm from the plural to the singular is a very appropriate application of this psalm. What Peter's doing is he's saying Psalm 69 talks about God's enemies and how they ought to be treated. And Judas, God's enemy, was treated in this way. May his camp become desolate and let no one dwell in it. It's an application of Psalm 69, verse 25. Okay, so that's the first quotation. The second one is from Psalm 109. So you'll uh, turn about 40 psalms or 50 psalms over. Psalm 109, fortunately, is a shorter psalm. And we'll be looking at verse 8 of Psalm 109. And I'll save you uh, the, the hardship of me repeating myself again. Psalm 109, almost the exact same context as Psalm 69. Someone from God, someone who's a faithful believer in God, crying out for help and deliverance from the enemies of God. And so in this case... We're, uh, well, I'll pick it up in verse 6. That's, that's the stanza. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth as guilty. Let his prayers be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. 
May his children be fatherless and his wife be a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking for food far from the ruins that they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Uh, Again, this psalm is speaking about someone who's an enemy of God's people, who's enacting wickedness against God's people, and justice being brought about by the punishment of that evildoer. And in this case, the specific line, may another take his office, is being applied in the context of the New Testament, where Judas, who betrayed Christ, has forfeited his office by that betrayal. His office is left desolate. Let someone else take it. That's the application of this psalm. So what Peter's doing is he's not, he's not saying when the psalmist was writing Psalm 109, the only thing he had in view was Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Or, in Psalm 69, what the psalmist had in mind was only Judas's betrayal of Jesus. But what Peter's saying is the Old Testament, which is hundreds of years old for him, is exceedingly relevant to the situation which we currently find ourselves in. In fact, it applies almost one-to-one. The Psalms, by the way, have a habit of doing this kind of thing for God's people. They are so timeless in their application of truth and wisdom that it is, it is a very short distance for us to read a psalm and understand how it applies to our life. If you don't believe me, as a Christian, if you're ever struggling with doubt or with fear, go read through the Psalter. You won't go very long before you find almost the words you wanted to say as you ought to have prayed them. The psalms are abidingly relevant to Christians, and Peter here makes applications from the psalms to their situation. And so the actions that they conclude, or the conclusion theologically in this case, is we should find replacements for Judas. So uh, here we have the apostles gathered uh, with, with an extended group, and they conclude Judas, the traitor, uh, uh, he has left a hole in the apostles uh, of the 12. Now there's only 11. So that's a problem. So there's one problem, and then we have two solutions to that problem. One would be the one named Matthias, and the other would be the one whose name is Joseph. Now, they also have other names and all that, but I'm going to call them Joseph and Matthias. And these, these two men are the two possible replacements to Judas. And so these, and those two possible replacements, in order for them to be replacements, there's three criteria that they have to meet. And those criteria are laid out for us beginning in verse 21. So Judas is out. What should we do? So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put forth these two. So the apostles are discerning who it is that's going to replace them, and they have these criteria. So the first criteria that we see in the text is it someone who's essentially been with Jesus throughout? Someone who's been with him from the time of his baptism all the way through until his ascension? That's criteria number one, we might say. To be an apostle, this must fit. You might be thinking, by the way, right now of other things. I'm going to get to problems and concerns here. Criteria number two, this person must be a witness to the resurrected Christ. So remember Jesus, before his ascension, says, you will be my witnesses, speaking merely to the apostles, and obviously by extension to the church, but through the apostles, his appointed witnesses, he speaks. And so this person doesn't just need to be a witness to Jesus' life, 
They also need to be witnesses to his resurrection as well, an eyewitness of the resurrection. So that's criteria number two. And criteria number three, a little bit more difficult to see in the text, but I hope you follow me for just a moment. So after they, they establish those first two criteria, then what they do is they pray and they cast lots to see whom the lots will fall on. Now, why they're doing this is because uh, there's, a, there's a tradition tracing back to the book of Proverbs, and even tracing back to the time of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and even as they were traveling in the wilderness, where they would discern the will of Yahweh by a certain appointed means, by the casting of what's called the Urim and the Thummim. You don't need to know what those things are. Very few people know what they actually are. A lot of people have ideas about what they are. But it's essentially a way of having a randomized or non-human-influenced outcome. And according to God's providence, the outcome that the lot lands on is the discerning will of God. Now, what this does not mean is that, therefore, gambling is somehow the will of God for people to win or to lose. Certainly, it is the case. But the book of Proverbs does say that man casts lots, but every decision comes from the Lord. So there is a tradition in the church and even in selection of Christian leaders wherein you, you, you choose and select from a number of qualified candidates where you'd say these are all candidates according to human wisdom and understanding who would be qualified. And there's yet one criteria missing, someone who is directly chosen by Christ to be an apostle. And in this case, how does Christ directly choose? Well, by the randomization of the casting of lots, Christ is able to choose between Matthias or uh, Joseph. He's able to choose, and the lot falls on Matthias. Now, we can debate and, and ask questions about the abiding relevance of this kind of practice for today. I certainly don't think it's without, without precedent in the New Testament. But the thing I want you to see in the text is the third criteria, what I'm, what I'm going to come back to here. The third criteria is that an apostle must be commissioned by Christ himself. And in this case, the lots serve as that function. They don't have, the disciples don't have perfect knowledge of what Jesus wants in this situation, so they go to lots as a randomized way of, of achieving some level of God's providence at work in their situation. So the three criteria are a witness to his life the whole way throughout, a witness to his resurrection, and personally commissioned by Christ himself. So the problem, the one problem that Judas has left a vacant seat, there's two possible replacements to Judas, and we have those two before us. There's three criteria for these replacements to meet, and only Matthias meets all three of those criteria. Hence why Matthias is put in the position of being the apostle, the one to replace Judas. So now we can ask the all-important question that we should always be asking when we read Scripture. What on earth does it have to do with me today? Not to say that what does this have to do with me, but how is this relevant to my life as I live here uh, thousands of years after these events take place? It's interesting to know that they rolled some dice to get a disciple in play, but what does that have to do with me as I go tomorrow and try to obey the Lord better or try to love my wife better? How does this apply? Well, what this text does, and I started here, is the text, I think, establishes for us one of the core beliefs of Christians, which is that God has spoken to us, and in speaking to us, we have assurance of how we ought to live and behave and function in the world which he has given to us. <clears throat> Scripture 
is our authority. And where I'm coming from that is the apostles, the ones who were just selected with these criteria, are the ones who go out and write scripture. They're the ones who go out and compose the New Testament. It's their writings that are canonized into the 27 books in the New Testament. And it's their use of the Old Testament that grandfathers that in to the Christian usage of the Old Testament. So what the apostles are doing here is they're, they're essentially saying, and I think what Luke's showing to us, there's a, there's a chain of command in terms of how God has spoken. He has spoken in these last days through his son. His son has chosen to entrust witness and speaking power to the apostles who themselves are bound by what Christ has spoken. The apostles, as we're going to see in a, in a number of verses, are anointed with the Holy Spirit to go on and preach and speak the word of God. And after the apostles pass away, their instruction and authority to the church is, uh, is encapsulated in their writings. We do not have living apostles today whom we, who have fresh words or fresh insights from God who can say to us, here is what God has said. It's a new revelation, a fresh revelation, and we can ignore the old stuff. We have a chain of command that Christ himself has given to us. And so... Uh, as you see in the book of Acts, the apostles are the ones through whom the gospel goes forth in. It is through their instructions and teaching that the canon is, uh, is put together. And so what, what we can conclude from this is scripture is the word of God and it's our authoritative word even for today. Uh, we, who are not apostles, have no right to add to or take away from the words that Christ has given to us. We, we simply don't have the authority to do that. God has spoken, and he has spoken through his messengers, through his heralds. They were specially chosen servants for this, for this task. Okay, so scripture is our authority, and we can ask the immediate uh, follow, we, can, we can immediately try to apply that, which is, how does that inform, uh, let's say, preaching today and teaching and reading of God's word? Well, if scripture is our authority, then what a pastor says, what, I, what I'm saying to you right now, is bounded up in what scripture has already said. When pastors minister to congregants, when pastors preach sermons, they have a, a closed canon of stuff that they are allowed to say, a closed canon of jurisdiction in which to, they're allowed to speak into. And unfortunately, unfortunately it is the case that pastors, just like I think many others, but pastors especially, can wield influence and power, and that can go to their head, and then they can start wielding influence and power in ways in which Scripture has said, this is off limits to you. God has spoken in his word through his apostles, and so the first people who ought to obey that is the ones who carry that message today themselves. To say, God has spoken in his word, and then to say, but my opinions are also on that same playing field, it's just, it's just, a total, it's just totally off limits. God has spoken in his word through his apostles, and so no one who's not an apostle, i.e. every minister today, has to speak what God has already spoken in the lanes in which God has spoken it. Now that certainly means, as you saw the apostles doing, that we can apply scripture to today. For example, look at the example of the Psalms that we looked at in the text. The Psalms were in their context and applied into the modern situation and setting. That's legitimate. But pastors have a limited corpus of what they can speak and speak about. And you might, you might say, well, many of you aren't pastors. Most of you aren't pastors. 
Scripture has spoken, and so therefore you have a limited criteria of authoritative words to listen to and to obey. That's important because we live in a world that constantly vies for our submission and for our attention. Every single thing that we listen to, every book that we read, is trying to influence us to do and to think and to behave in certain ways. When you interact with coworkers and friends, they're, they're trying to get you to do things. That's not sinfully manipulative or anything like that. That's just how humans interact with each other. We're trying to influence one another for better or for worse. But we have one sure authoritative thing that we must obey, that we must listen to, and it's the word of God. God's word is our authority as well, and it's the one thing which commands utter obedience in our lives. Nothing else commands utter obedience in our lives. God says, for example, submit to government. And as you're going to see the apostles in Acts chapter 4, uh, they say we must obey God rather than man when they're told to stop speaking the word of God by their governing officials. Paul himself is crucified by governing officials, or not crucified, he's, he's put to death by governing officials because he's stirring up trouble for preaching the gospel. And Paul sees no contradiction in submitting to government and submitting to Christ because Christ is a triumphing authority over and above those governing officials. So we have one perfect infallible authority, and that is the word of God as it's recorded for us in scripture. And now we can ask, uh, or we can, we can take that one step further, we can say, Uh, these witnesses, these apostles, actually, according to the book of Acts, aren't limited to the 12 who have just been selected. Paul is referred to as an apostle in the New Testament. Barnabas is referred to as an apostle in the New Testament. James, not James the, the apostle, James the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle according to the New Testament. Jude, uh, who writes the book of Jude, uh, he's also called an apostle, and he's a brother of Jesus. So, what I don't want you to walk away with from here is thinking that what Acts chapter 1 is trying to do is to say, here are the 12 apostles and it's no one else. Because those, that criteria becomes relevant for the apostles that are later selected. And that key criteria of being commissioned by Christ to this work of apostleship is, is one of the governing factors. For instance, Paul is not an eyewitness of Christ all throughout his earthly ministry. He's not even an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Paul's an eyewitness of the glorified and ascended Christ. So he doesn't meet criteria one or criteria two, but as Paul himself labors to point out and Acts labors to point out, Paul is commissioned by the ascended Christ to do the work of an apostle. Similarly with Barnabas and with Judas and with the others as well. So that singular calling from Christ to commission someone to this work is really the defining factor of apostleship. God is the one who gives to the church apostles for the church's benefit. We must submit ourselves to this as a pastor. I must submit myself to this as as members of a church. You must submit yourself to the teaching of God's word. And the most most important way in which this happens is, is actually not intellectual thought. Intellectual thought is one, and I would say a small one, way in which we can submit to God's word. We can intellectually say, I believe and assent to what God has spoken. And I trust him and I believe him. And we can intellectually do that. But it's a small thing to intellectually submit to God if we will not submit also with our total lives to God as well. Those of you who are married know it's a lot easier to affirm something like husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Intellectually submit to that truth 
and then to, to walk that out week in and week out. Those are totally different ballgames. Or wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, it's one thing to say, I understand God's good design in that. It's another thing to walk that out in the trenches of the everyday. It's one thing, church, to say, I believe that Christ is Lord of my life and has freed me from bondage to sin. And another to walk that out in obedience in our life. Submission to the word of God is not primarily an intellectual exercise. It is primarily a discipline of ourselves, all of ourselves. And that never, that never means that our righteousness becomes our submission to the word of God. We all fall short, even as Christians, of perfect submission and obedience to Christ. It's why we need Christ to be our mediator. It's why we need Christ to be our sacrifice. It's why we need his righteousness and not ours. What the Bible does not teach is that we are sinners before Christ. Christ saves us from our sin and then sets us forward on a new course, a new chart, in which we begin to accumulate righteousness for ourselves after we become Christians. It's not like he clears our debt and then gives us a reset to zero and then says, now go forth and be righteous. He says, go forth in obedience, go forth and be witnesses. He says all kinds of things like that. But the righteousness of a Christian, the righteousness of a follower of Christ, is never based on what they have done. It's always that same foundational thing that Christ is righteous. Paul says it this way to the Galatian church. Are you who were rescued by the Spirit now being perfected in the flesh? Translation, are you who were rescued by Christ and forgiven by him of your sins now perfecting that obedience in your ability to obey the law of God? No. No one can add to the law of God. No one can add to the perfect righteousness of Christ. So as I, as I want you to understand, the authority of Scripture is paramount. Our obedience to Scripture is paramount, but it's never, ever our source of righteousness. But that doesn't actually strip its authority away, as I, as I fear we often do in the West, say, because it's not my righteousness, therefore, I can do whatever I want. Now, there's plenty of things Scripture tells us to obey and to submit to. There's at least one more thing that I want to uh, show you from this text, an implication, I would say, from this text. Peter's example of how to, how to use the Old Testament, the, the account of Judas, uh, which is seemingly at discrepancy with the Gospel of Matthew, and even this difficulty of what is the criteria for an apostle and who matches that criteria, I think it, it brings up for us a number of questions as good students of Scripture, which might cause doubt for us who are followers of Christ. When I say cause doubt, I'm not saying that we're saying I'm going to abandon my faith tomorrow, but I think often as Christians we feel this pressure to not ask questions of the text because we feel like it's impious to ask difficult questions of the text of Scripture. We feel as though it's a, it's a, a slight against God to say, this doesn't make sense to me, I, I need to ask questions, I need to study this to make sense of it. That is not at all an impious exercise. That's not, a, that's not a wicked thing to do to say, this scripture doesn't make sense to me, therefore I must explore and study it more deeply and ask difficult questions like, what does this mean? And is this even a fair use of the Old Testament and, and things like that? What we see throughout, I think the New Testament and I would even say throughout the history of the church as it wrestles with the text of scripture, is that yes, God has spoken in his word, 
But humans, that's us, are very much fallible interpreters of that infallible scripture. So it's, it's fair and even likely and even possible for you or I to wrestle with the text of scripture, not be able to make sense of it, come to one conclusion, and then three years later say, actually, I see it the other way now, and the whole time be asking the question, does this mean God's word is shifting around and bouncing and moving in terms of its authority? Absolutely not. God's word is always what it is. It always has one intended purpose, outcome, and instruction to us. And in the big categories, in the main, it's totally understandable and reliable. Then there's these fringes which are very difficult to understand, and people have PhDs wrestling over the questions that those fringes provide. And so if you're a lay Christian, you're not studying to get a PhD in something, you don't need to be able to cross every D and dot, cross every T, dot every I in the text in order to continue in faith as a Christian. The best of church history would tell us that what faithful Christians do their whole lives is wrestle with the text of Scripture. They wrestle with what it says, how it calls them to obedience, what is the obedience that it's calling them to. They wrestle with it. But where, where Christians do not go is to say that if this is God's word, then God is wrong. If this is God's word, then God is wicked. If this is God's word, then God is unjust. Instead, what, what a Christian would say is something more like this. Man, if this is God's word, this is difficult. And I'm having a hard time getting my head and my heart around it. I wonder if there are resources out there or brothers and sisters who might help me to see and to understand or to dialogue with about this difficulty. What we never do is we, we never call God's righteousness, his holiness, or his justice into question, even if we might feel the pressure of a text that might seem to allude to unrighteousness or injustice on God's part. As students of scripture, we submit ourselves to studying it in its totality, turning over every stone and every rock to try to see where truth is, wherever it may be found. And we trust that God, through his spirit working in his church and through his spirit working in our lives, will seek and give answers to those who seek answers from him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God is the God who is pleased to reveal himself to his people. So if you've ever doubted as a Christian with, with questions about faith or what, what the church believes or what does the text say, those doubts are within bounds, totally okay, and even normative in the life of the church. And we would invite you, uh, especially here, to ask those kinds of questions, study the text, be a student of it, so that you can better submit yourself honestly to the text of Scripture, which is the spoken word of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active, a sure foundation for us. Lord, we thank you that your word has been entrusted to faithful witnesses, to the apostles, to be protected from error, to be guarded, to be purified, and Lord, that for thousands of years this has served to benefit your people. Lord, we thank you that even today, a, a book that was written so long ago can be relevant to us. Lord, we pray as Christians that we would be able to submit ourselves better to your word. Lord, we have doubts. Often we have weaknesses and failings. Often we have difficulties in obeying. But Lord, we trust ourselves to you. Would you help us to obey? Would you help us to see and to understand? 
would you make clear to our minds difficulties of the text? And would you help us as we study and as we wrestle and as we seek to obey, would you give us grace upon grace upon grace to reveal yourself to us, to be kind to us, and to show us your glory as it is revealed in your word? We pray this all together in Christ's name. Amen.